Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. Your own podcast should be the first one you listen to. Well said. <laughs> NSL Double Talk featuring Flora Miller-Biddle and Fiona Donovan. Their topic today is the legacy of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. Flora is the granddaughter of the sculptor Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who founded the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1931, when Flora was just three. She has published four books, including The Whitney Women and the Museum They Made, and Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, a biography. Flora was president of the Whitney Museum for two decades and is a lifetime trustee. She served in the New York City Art Commission from 1980 until 1990, and she received her bachelor's from Manhattanville College in 1978 at the age of 50. Flora's daughter, Fiona, is the great-granddaughter of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney and is a teacher and writer based in New York. She received her PhD in art history from Columbia University and has worked at the Leo Castelli Gallery, the Walker Art Center, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and the Whitney Museum. Fiona is the author of Rubens in England and Jasper Johns, Pictures Within Pictures, and serves on the board of the Whitney Museum. We are so excited to welcome Flora and Fiona to NSL Double Talk. Well, Mom, it's so great to sit down with you today and have a talk about this person who we both admire and love so much, your grandmother and my great-grandmother, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who founded the Whitney Museum. Well, I feel so lucky to be here talking with you, Fiona, because you've advanced the legacy that we all have in our family of this museum in particular, and of this amazing woman who started out as not being a professional in any way at all. And maybe we could start with introducing her as a young girl. Well, I wanted to sort of jump ahead for a moment and just maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I wanted to start with the punchline because the Whitney Museum has become such an important institution since it was founded in 1930, and it's about to celebrate its fifth year in its new building next week, believe it or not. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Remember, it was five years ago that you introduced Mrs. Obama at the groundbreaking. I can't believe it was that long ago. That's incredible. Yeah. And I think during this time of tremendous challenge and hardship on so many fronts, it seems natural to look back at this time of great struggle. And recently I've been thinking a lot about Gertrude and her founding of the Whitney in 1930, just when the U.S. was entering the Great Depression. And at the um, dedication in 1931, she said, And I quote, it is especially at times like these that we need to look to the spiritual. In art, we find it. And um, I think like then, today, the creative spirit has never been more essential. So we we would like to introduce Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. She 
was born in 1875 as actually the eldest daughter of the eldest son of the richest American family. You would think that her path lay before her of being a social person, probably a mother and a daughter and a sister and not much else, but that was not what was to happen. She wrote about being four years old when she wrote the beginning of an autobiography many years later, and this is what she said. One of the first things I remember was how I longed to be a boy. I was four years old when unable to resist the temptation longer. I secreted myself in my mother's room and proceeded to cut off my curls. This seemed to me was what distinguished me most from my brothers. They said only girls had curls, so mine was sacrificed, and all I gained was a severe punishment. So, poor Gertrude, she, so you can see that she was very early aware of the preference of people for boys over girls and the difficulty that it would have been for girls to rise in the world. And she was already so ambitious. As you say, it is so hard to imagine what motivated her to create a larger life for herself when she could have so easily hewed to the expectations of a society wife. And in many ways, she did. But such things as streetcars were off limits to her, and she couldn't ride a bicycle, and friends were totally confined to the family social circle. She couldn't be alone with a boy. Every single social occasion required its own outfit. The loss of a family member meant two years of mourning, wearing black and leading an even more circumscribed life. So it's really hard to imagine how she managed to move away from that world that so tightly confined her. She had many bows, but she always realized and thought that they were only interested in her for her money. And this was often true, I'm sure. But she finally found a husband who maybe didn't have as much money as she potentially did, but had a lot older money, which was considered better. And she married Harry Payne Whitney, who was a hero in his own life in a sporting way. He was a champion polo player at a time when polo was in the headlines of the newspapers, who was going to win, who was going to take the big cups, who went to England and took back the biggest cup of all as head of the team, and that was Harry Whitney. And he was very handsome and charming and not interested really in the things that Gertrude became interested in, which you can talk about. <laughs> well... They set up a life for themselves, but once again, it was not very far removed from where Gertrude had grown up. She grew up in what is now Bergdorf Goodman in a huge 137-room house that was at the corner of 58th Street and 5th Avenue, and Harry's house was across the street. 
And when they got married, her his father gave them his house. And so Gertrude moved across the street from where she had grown up. And that was in 1896. But by 1907, she had established a studio in Greenwich Village, started working as a sculptor, and started showing the work of her fellow artists in her Greenwich Village studio. She looked around and realized that these artists were not getting the support she felt they deserved and decided to do something about it. It's really hard to imagine today, isn't it, Mom? It's really hard to imagine. Most collectors, European art was really all that mattered. And as an artist, she was determined to get commissions herself, but also to build audiences for American art, which she felt was so significant. And she really struggled to achieve both of these goals, yes? Yes. She started thinking that she wanted to help in some way. This and also the terrible time of depression, which happens every so often in our country, and and there was one at that time. And she started going to a place called Greenwich House, which still exists, actually, in Greenwich Village in New York. And she was teaching play modeling there when she realized that she really wanted to be a sculptor herself and got very good teachers to give her coaching and teaching. And as Fiona said, by 1907, she had a studio. She was showing this, the work of other artists who have since become um, iconic in American art. People like Edward Hopper and Stuart Davis She not only showed their work, but she helped them if they needed something like a hospital bill to be paid or a a trip to Paris where every artist wanted to go to study and learn more about art. And she would pay for those kinds of things or just have openings of their work at her studio where she served sandwiches and lots of drinks, which were very um, welcome to this group of artists. <laughs> and meanwhile, she had three children, including your mother, Flora Whitney, and continued her society life uptown, which I believe was a real struggle for her. And one of the things that I think about a lot is how she achieved this work-life balance that she clearly managed so well. She did have a hard time with Harry over the years, I I think. I think that he he really encouraged her to work, but then when she did, he didn't like it so much because she wasn't available to him as much. So, yes, I agree that it was really hard. In uh, 1916, she commissioned the artist Robert Henry to paint a wonderful portrait of her in these beautiful silk pajamas, lounging settee in a sort of Venus pose. And it shows her with um, lovely cropped curls and very open expression. And it was so shocking that Harry would not allow it to hang in their uptown house. 
So she hung it in her studio instead. And I think of this as the one beginning of the Whitney when she had this rebellious moment and thought, well, if I can't hang it uptown, I'll just go downtown and and get to know my fellow artists, which is definitely what she did. And at the same time, she hired uh, an assistant who eventually became the first director of the Whitney, and this was Juliana Force. And their partnership was really critical for the development of the museum and for the increasing interest in American art at this time. But I, I wanted to take a moment and just ask you, Mom, how you became aware of all of this information back in the 1970s. Oh, well, I became aware of it early on because of my mother's very close relationship with her mother. And when we were living in South Carolina with my own family, with my mother and my sister and my two brothers, my mother would leave us occasionally to go to New York, and we always knew that it was to see her mother and to go to the museum. And we didn't really know what that was until I was about, I don't know, 15 or 16, and I was taken to the Whitney by Juliana Force and my mother. And I was very interested, but didn't learn much about it then. But it was certainly very fascinating. I didn't know my grandmother very much because we didn't live near her. But when I did see her, I was very intrigued. She used to play that game with us that that artists in France played. What's it called, Fiona? Exquisite Corpse. Exquisite Corpse, where you say so-and-so and so-and-so met so-and-so and the moon was bright and they fell in love, <laughs> that kind of thing, and you trade papers. You fold the paper over and then the next person goes. And then the next person goes, right. <laughs> create a narrative that way. The other thing she did was to give me for Christmas one year a typewriter, which I was longing for. And that was a very significant um, sort of symbol to to me of what was possible in terms of writing. And that was special. But I didn't really know her that well. And then when she died, my mother was heartbroken because she wrote. She had never had such fun with anybody before. And she was just very, very sad and felt that she must continue with the work that her mother had done. I think we need to go back a bit to where Gertrude had supported this wonderful idea of helping artists to get more recognition. She had done this through the Whitney Studio Club, which were predecessor institutions to the Whitney Museum of American Art. Then at a certain point, when they were buying art from every exhibition they had, Juliana Force and Gertrude, they realized that they had too many works and nowhere to put them and no more money and all of these things were happening at the same time. And then Harry, her husband, died in 1929, and that was terrible. So she decided that this should become a museum, that there was no Museum of American Art the museums that existed in New York, mostly the Metropolitan, had no American work in their collections and never showed it. 
So she decided that she would offer it to them with a stipend. Um, with an endowment. An endowment. To build a wing. So Juliana Force went to the director and the president of the Metropolitan to offer this, and they, she got as far as saying, Mrs. Whitney would like to give the works of art to the Metropolitan. Never got to the money part when the director and the president said, oh, he must be kidding. We're not interested in American art. Terrible stuff. So they turned it down and never found out that she would have built a wing for them. And so that very Thank day goodness. when she went back to report this to Gertrude, Gertrude said, okay, we'll do it ourselves. And you, Julianne, of course, will be the first director and it will be a wonderful, wonderful museum. And so it opened in 1931, I believe. It didn't open in 1930 because of Harry's death. Yeah. And Gertrude was in mourning for that entire year. But I'm curious still about how you became so interested in all of this and how you also became a leader of the Whitney pretty much at the same time in the 1970s. Hmm. Well, for one thing, I went to college very late. Ah. <laughs> I went to college when I was in my 40s instead of the time when you're supposed to go because I had gotten married and had my own wonderful four children and had stayed home with them. And then eventually I went back to college. I went to Manhattanville College and was in a class, a seminar, where you had to write about a woman who you admired. And so I thought, well, I admire my grandmother, and there's that museum that I don't really know very well, but I like it. So why not write about her? So I went to my mother and I said, do you have any stuff about your mother that I could look at, any papers or anything? She said, well, I don't know. I think maybe. Why don't you look? And so she showed me the way to the third floor in the house that she had inherited from her mother. In Long Island. In Long Island, and where Gertrude had had a studio also. So I went up to this hot, dusty attic and discovered not only all of the clothes that Gertrude had had when she died, but uh, boxes and trunks and suitcases and <laughs> just piles of material, papers, diaries, books that she'd written, the most extraordinary amount of material. And I was overwhelmed. And I wrote a paper very hurriedly, and the people in the seminar said, well, what are you going to do about this? And I couldn't think what to do. And at that point, I was already on the board of the Whitney and had made friends with one of the other trustees who was a writer and had written about art and also a collector of American art, B.H. Friedman. So I asked him if he'd be interested in writing a biography of my grandmother. And he had just finished a biography of Jackson Pollock, and he said, yes, I would be interested. I think she was an amazing person. So that's how I got interested. He said, I'll only do it if you'll do the research. 
Wow. So we worked together on it for five years, and it came out in, I don't know, 60-something. 78, I believe. Well, you never know what you're going to find in an attic, do you? (laughs) That's remarkable. I'm just curious, what did your mother think about all the material? Because Gertrude wrote copious journal entries and letters that she sent, letters she didn't send. And I'm curious about the material that showed your mother's parents' unhappiness and their dalliances or flirtations. Was she upset? Was she surprised? Was she fascinated? She was fascinated. (laughs) She adored her mother. And I would go and read to her um, because both B.H. Friedman and myself didn't want to publish anything that would have upset her in any way because we adored my mother. Both of us did. So I would go wherever she was and read to her every time we had a new chapter or a new whatever. And I discovered that she was absolutely fascinated. She wanted to know all these things. And even when Gertrude seemed to be having a love affair with somebody, she was all the more interested. She wanted to know. Wow. And I thought that was remarkable and quite wonderful. Amazing. And meantime, my mother was leading the Whitney's still, and as president, she wasn't ambitious in the same way as my grandmother and wasn't an artist herself, but she believed absolutely in the Whitney's ideals of supporting art and artists and of American art in particular. And she did a great job. The trustees adored her. And as the board grew larger, they admired her tremendously. And this was all during the time that the Breuer building was built on 75th Street and Madison Avenue in New York. And that is a story in itself. I think what you are getting to is really what sets the Whitney apart from other museums in terms of its longtime support of artists. The museum seems to have developed in a much more organic way than typical museums. It really started without the idea of a collection, and the collection just developed over time, really over almost 30 years before Gertrude ever even had the idea of starting a museum. And it was only out of necessity of realizing that she had all these works of art and wasn't sure what to do with them that she decided to start a museum. Before that, she really had just been, had the idea of supporting artists, paying the occasional hospital bill or for a trip to Europe to study art or um, a rent bill. And then um, the museum developed in this sort of informal way. Absolutely. So why did you think it was important to lead the museum and to continue our family's interest in the museum? It felt important. It felt like nobody else was going to do that. We had developed a support system with committees and trustees and people who seemed to really care about it. 
because I think the Whitney had a very personal aspect to it. It was a place that people felt comfortable in coming and or the people who came did anyway. We wished that a more diverse group would come and we worked on that, but it was hard to get people from the outlying regions of the city to come in and see it because people just didn't know about American art. They just didn't Mm -hmm. still. But it's true. It always had that human element. How do you sense? Does it have it today? Definitely. It continues to have a very human aspect, I think. It continues to be seen as a museum that involves artists to a a large extent. And I think it was very important that you became a leader at the time that you did and became the president of the museum at the time that you did. It wasn't until 1966 that there were any non-family trustees. That's right. That's right. And then there were just five for quite a while. And they were people who had contributed to the Whitney in terms of works of art. The Whitney didn't accept gifts of money until after that, mm-hmm. which is also very interesting, I think. And I'm not sure why, but there was no money to go on with the Whitney. There was no way that it was going to continue as an independent entity unless there was a great deal more money because everything in New York was getting more expensive and that it just couldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting idea to think about how museums transition from becoming smaller institutions like all the private museums that are springing up in the country today and how they transition from being small private museums to these major institutions that the Whitney has become. I wonder why that is. I think that those small private museums are perhaps expressions of the ego of the people who make the collections. Um, if they don't want them to be a big public or part, a relatively insignificant part of a public institution. But when you think about something like the Lehman Wing at the Met, it's so wonderful that it's there at the Met to me because we can all go and see it when we go to the Met. And it, it has the Lehman name on it, but that's okay. Right, right. And... I don't know what will happen if if that idea doesn't continue. I don't know how museums will survive, actually, because they really need both the art and the money. So true. And the belief in it. Well, getting back to your tenure as president, I think you actually realized that early on in concert with the director at the time, Tom Armstrong, And I remember a particularly wonderful moment, which was also a bit of a crisis for the museum, when the Calder retrospective was taking place, and Calder sadly died towards the end of it, and the French government wanted to take the Calder Circus, which was one of the great, great parts of the Whitney Collection. It was so popular. People would come and see it because not only was it the circus itself, but also a film of Calder performing the circus that was shown at the same time. People just loved it. 
So we had to raise a million dollars, or was it a million and a quarter? Which was unimaginable for the Whitney. There just was no way. We didn't have a board that could do that. We didn't know people who could give us that kind of money or even foundations. And you'd never raised that kind of money. We had never done it before. But Tom Armstrong was a go-for-it kind of guy. He was a great director, and he and I just decided that we had to do it. So the trustees gave generously and according to their means, and then we enlisted the Barnum and Bailey Circus to help us, and they were thrilled. And they sent the kids, the circus kids, all over New York to, in every park with little tins that said, Save the Calder Circus. <laughs> and they got lots of attention that way, and there were lots of stories in the news. And it was a real was, grassroots effort. It was, really was. It was exciting. And then we, when the circus joined us, they decided to send an elephant up to the front of the Whitney on Madison Avenue, stopping all the traffic. <laughs> and it was so great. And this wonderful elephant called Targa reached her trunk toward me and picked me up and sat me on her back. <laughs> so it was exciting for me. And I had invited someone to come who, who was the head of a rather large foundation hoping that some miracle would occur. And, in fact, he came and invited us to his office the next day, and Tom and I went, and he said he was giving us a million dollars. So we had raised the money in one fell swoop. Wow. The rest of it was raised by the trustees and other friends, and this was really very thrilling. That's called creative fundraising. <laughs> and we went, we, Tom and I got to go in the circus. The circus had offered us a performance where the money from the performance would all go towards saving the circus. And now we didn't need that money anymore. So they said, well, instead you can come and be in it. <laughs> so the two of the clowns gave us their costumes and their faces, which is a great gift from a circus clown and painted us all up and gave us costumes and we went in the parade and we went in the wash the fierce act and we just had a wonderful time and everyone was so happy that the circus was staying at the Whitney. Oh, what a great story. Well, I think for all of us, starting with Gertrude, it has brought a succession of mothers and daughters together to care for something that we love and support in a really meaningful way. So Fiona herself is a distinguished art historian who has written some absolutely extraordinary books. And she's the first really trained person in the family who's been involved. How, how did you get involved with the Whitney, Fiona? Well, I started just like you at the working, volunteering at the membership desk, signing people up to become more involved with the museum. And it was so much fun being on the ground in that way. And then I joined some acquisition committees to help the museum with its collection. And that is a great way to learn 
about art and to learn about museums. And I've served on the board now for many years. And it's just been a tremendous pleasure. But I'm thinking back to that day that was now five years ago, next week, and to um, wonderful architect, Renzo Piano, who designed the new Whitney. And I thought I would read a short quote from his remarks at the dedication. I wish I could speak in his bewitching Italian accent. He speaks of the Whitney in terms that Gertrude would have admired and even loved. He starts with the, the building's piazza, a place, according to Piano, where people gather, they mix their experience, and eventually fear goes away. And then he spoke of the museum building itself. He says, it stretches from east where the sun comes up, flirting with the city by the terrace, by the stairs. This is the place where people can enjoy life, taking time, meandering on the stairs, loitering around, and on the west where the sun goes down. The building talks to the rest of the world. It talks to the traffic of the highway. There's nothing wrong with that. That's New York. It talks to the river, and it talks to the far west. It talks to Los Angeles, if you look carefully, and it talks to the rest of the world. I like the idea that this building is stretched between New York and the rest of the world. I love making buildings, but I especially love making buildings for public use. I especially love making buildings for art and beauty. And the reasons are very simple, because art and beauty make people better people. Beauty switches on a special light in people's eyes, builds curiosity and desires. At the same time that buildings for art make people better people, they make cities a better place to live. I'm pretty sure that beauty will save the world. It will save one person at a time. Not all together, but it will do it. Oh, Fiona, that's a wonderful quote. <laughs> and Renzo Piano is a wonderful architect for sure. And I was just thinking that 90 years after it opened, you know, the Whitney has become a major public institution and continues to channel Gertrude's liberal aim to support living artists to encourage freedom of thought and expression and inclusion in the art it shows and in its audience. And I'm so proud of the Whitney and grateful to its staff at this time for finding inventive ways for viewers to experience art and educational programming just when we need it most of all. That's a wonderful way to put it, Fiona, and it's really true. We can watch on our machines as the art continues to be made by the wonderful artists who make it. And we can see the programs that the Whitney is developing. We can see Adam Weinberg, who is the director of the Whitney now, encouraging us to look at these presentations and to wait eagerly for the next step. Well said. Well, it's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you today on thinking about this institution that we love so much and Gertrude who started it all. Well, I thank you for being involved with it. It means so much to me. And I think you have some children 
<laughs> and on Denise's who are already interested. Two of them are called Flora, actually, and they're very interested in the Whitney and the others. There's Lucy and Tess and many others in the next generation who care already for the Whitney in their early 20s. And this is exciting for me to see. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.